Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and I have with me today Professor Michael Humer, who's the author of Ethical Intuitionism, as well as Knowledge, Reality, and Value, a mostly common sense guide to philosophy. Of that one here. And also um, many other books, but we're mainly talking about those two today because those are the ones I'm going through. So, you know, just to give everyone a quick idea of what we'll be talking about, it'll mostly be about meta ethics um, as contrasted with applied ethics and normative ethics. And, you know, the metaphysics and epistemology of morals, like what are morals? Are there moral facts? How do we know about them, etc.? So thank you for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I, um, I've recommended this book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, so many times that um, I, one of my friends asked me if I get a commission for it every time <laughs> I say. Yeah, would you like um, a commission? Yeah, I said Michael Humor pays me one penny uh, every time I recommend the book. So by my calculations, you owe me about $480,000. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess we should start off with some important terms, I guess, like that people tend to get hung up on and sometimes it can just derail the entire conversation. So it's slightly boring, but like if you don't get these terms clear, then people will not know what you're talking about and like the whole conversation will be pointless. So um, I guess we should start with objective and subjective. So what does it mean to say that something is objective, morally speaking? Yeah, I mean, objective in philosophy generally means independent of observers, right, in a particular sense. Um, that is, uh, a property is objective if a thing having that property doesn't depend upon uh, observers' attitudes towards that thing. And, uh, you know, it's easiest to, uh, to explain subjectivity and, you know, with examples. So, uh, funniness is said to be subjective. Like, that, like that's a pretty plausible example. So uh, if a joke is funny, you know, that's a matter of the amusement that it causes in audiences or something like that. Um, and if, if the joke is not at least disposed to cause amusement, then it just isn't funny. And that's just like built into what funniness is, right? Okay, so, but um, like the shape of an object is not dependent on observers in that way. So if there's a rectangular table um, that's not a matter of observers reacting to the table in a certain way. It doesn't matter how they feel about it or what they think about it or whether they even perceive it at all. It could just be rectangular by itself, right? Um, so rectangularity is objective. And then, you know, we have this question about moral properties. Are they objective or subjective, right? And so uh, if an action is wrong, is that a matter of how observers react to it or would react to it under some circumstances? Or is that just, you know, a matter of the nature of the action? Some people get confused because of the notion of subjectivity. Like they think that, you know, plausibly that like good and evil are inextricably linked to experiences of conscious subjects. You know, like, oh, you're hurting them and that you're causing them pain. You know, that's what makes it wrong. So it sounds like that's not what you mean when you say subjective, like, because um, I think what they're thinking is, you know, yeah, it's, it's an objective stance independent fact that I'm feeling pain. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're just, and then they, they yeah. think that rightness and wrongness has something to do with conscious creatures and the harm you might cause them. So things get kind of like mixed up here. Yeah. So like that, that does not count as subjectivism as, as that term is usually understood. Yeah, so there's a bunch of a bunch of ethicists or uh, hedonists or something like this or desire satisfaction theorists, right? So the hedonists think the only intrinsic value is pleasure. Um, pleasure is a state that exists in someone's mind. So does that mean that value is subjective? 
Well, that's not what we mean by subjective. What we mean is dependent on the attitude that observers have to the thing, right? So a subjectivist view would be like, whether pleasure is good or bad depends upon how observers feel about pleasure or what they think about pleasure or like some attitude that observers take towards pleasure, right? So uh, it could just be an objective fact that pleasure is good, right? Which would probably be the view of most utilitarians. Um, it's not that pleasure is good because we say it's good or something, right? It's just intrinsically good. Yeah, it's just it, the important thing is just subjective in the relevant sense. So you like clarify this notion of constitutive dependence in ethical intuitionism, which is just what you're describing. It constitutively depends on observers and their approval or disapproval of it. It's not like the intrinsic properties of that experience. It's like the approval or disapproval that's the important part. Right, yeah. The attitude that an observer has towards the thing that is said to have the property and I guess we should say something about this the word constitutive. So the idea is like, well, there's a particular way in which the subjective property depends on the observers, right? That it's sort of constituted by the observers taking this attitude, right? Meaning like what funniness is, is, you know, the disposition to cause certain reactions. Uh, it's not that the property is caused by the observer's attitudes. Like we're not saying that um, having a certain attitude towards a joke causes the joke to be funny. Rather, it's that people's disposition to take that attitude just is what it is for the joke to be funny, right? Like that's that's how funniness is subjective. And so, yeah, so similarly for, um, for moral properties, right? Like the question is, is the goodness of something just, just a matter of, is it just constituted by our taking some attitude or being disposed to take some attitude towards it? You know, like the different meta-ethical theories sometimes get confused, particularly by students. And um, so like on the subjectivist view, you could say there are moral facts. It's just that these facts depend on observers' attitudes. But like, it's true that torturing babies is wrong. That's true because it's a fact that we disapprove of it, right? <laughs> like if that's what the wrongness consists of, wrongness is constituted by our attitudes. And well, since we do in fact have the attitudes, that means that it is in fact wrong. Um, but you know, that's not called a realist position just because by realism, we mean that um, the moral properties have to be objective. So can you sketch out the five meta-ethical uh, positions? I mean, maybe first we should just sketch out what we mean by meta-ethics as contrasted with like normative ethics and applied ethics. Um, my understanding is just that, you know, meta-ethics is kind of the most abstract branch, you know, like first you've got applied ethics, which is, you know, abortion and gay marriage and, you know, weed legalization and, you know, drag queen story hour and other really fun stuff like that. And then, um, you know, normative ethics is, you know, that's when you're talking about deontology and utilitarianism and these sort of theories of rightness and wrongness. And then meta-ethics, you know, that deals with these really abstract questions like, is it an objective fact that it's wrong to, um, you know, torture people for fun? Or like, is it an objective stance independent fact that the Holocaust was bad? You know, so, um, yeah, yeah. so meta ethics is, you know, mainly what we're talking about today. But you, you have argued that there are like, there are exactly five meta ethical positions. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, meta ethics um, studies questions about the nature of ethics. So like, um, you know, are ethical statements ever objectively true or how do we know ethical statements and what role do they play in motivating people or things like that? Um, 
the main, the I guess the most popular question in metaethics is the question about objectivity. Are there objective values? So there are basically five views about this. So if you think there are no objective values, that means you have to think one of three things. Like you have to think either uh, there aren't any evaluative propositions in the first place. So there isn't anything there to be true or false. So then ethical statements are neither true nor false. Or you think um, they can be true or false, but they're always false. Okay, or you could think, no, they're sometimes true, but their truth depends on observers' attitudes in the way we were talking about. Okay, so those are the only three possibilities, because if you don't hold one of those, then what you think is that evaluative statements are sometimes true, they're true or false, they're sometimes true, and their truth doesn't depend on observers. Well, that's what it means that there are objective values. Okay, so... Um, all right, so you know the idea that they don't express propositions, that's known as non-cognitivism, or more recently, people call it expressivism, right? With the idea that when you say something like murder is wrong, you're expressing some attitude, but not belief, right? So like you're expressing your feelings or you're, express you're um, expressing a desire, or you're just like trying to influence other people's behavior or something like this, uh, rather than trying to describe a truth about something, okay? Um, you know, the, like the, the expressivist view, like as a meta-ethical theory is, um, it is itself a descriptive claim. It's a claim about empirical fact. Namely, it's a claim about how moral language works, that it functions to express some attitude other than belief, to express non-cognitive attitudes, right? And then, you know, you can just sort of like look at the way language works and see if, if it works the way expressions of emotions or other attitudes work. Right, and it doesn't, right? So, you know, there are tests like this, like um, if you have a statement of the form, if blank, then something. What goes in the blank has to be a proposition expressing phrase. Otherwise the whole thing doesn't make sense. So if hooray for the Broncos, then shut the door. So that doesn't make sense, right? And, you know, it's like, it's not just like you're not supposed to say that, it's that if somebody says that you don't know what that means, it just doesn't make sense. Okay, so um, so that gives you a test for um, a sentence being propositional, and there's just a whole bunch of examples are like that. There's a whole bunch of contexts in which you know there's something that where you have to put in a proposition expressing phrase in order for the whole sentence to make sense. Like I wonder whether, and then what goes after whether has to be proposition expressing statement. So I wonder whether it's going to rain tomorrow. Okay. But I wonder whether please pass the salt does not make sense, right? Okay, so anyway, and moral statements pass all of those tests. Like every place, you know, in the English language where you have to insert a proposition expressing phrase in order for the whole thing to make sense, you can put a moral statement. Like, I wonder whether abortion is wrong. And if abortion is wrong, then God is probably really upset, right? And so. Okay, so just like in every respect, it looks like moral statements are supposed to express propositions. I guess I was thinking of non-cognitivism slightly differently, but yeah, it is literally a claim about how how the world is, <laughs> like, you know, how moral language actually works. And if you can just show that that's not how moral language works, then that does actually falsify the view. Right, yeah. Okay, yeah. But I mean, it is also the claim that there are no, like, you know, objective moral properties in the world. In addition to that. Yeah, I mean, well, like, 
we don't have words that <laughs> like we don't have words that are even supposed to refer to objective moral properties. So I guess that means there aren't any. Um, and then uh, the view that ethical statements are always false, or I guess I should say positive ethical statements, or statements that attribute an ethical property are always false. This is referred to as nihilism or the error theory. And then uh, the view that they could be true, but it depends on the observer's attitudes is subjectivism and or relativism. All right, so then, um, okay, if you don't hold one of those, then you're a moral realist. There are two forms of realism known as naturalism and intuitionism. Um, so the naturalists think that ethical, um, ethical truths can be reduced to descriptive truths, meaning roughly that you can explain what it is for a thing to be good using non-evaluative terms. This isn't obviously false on its face, so like consider that you can explain the nature of colors without using color terms. Because like you could talk about wavelengths of light or something, and none of that discussion would have to use color terms, right? So, okay. Uh, and then the intuitionists think that ethical properties are irreducible. So you can't explain what goodness is without using other value terms, like good or ought or desirable or something. Um, they, and just, they, sorry, just to interrupt, you know, we're making this distinction between descriptive and evaluative terms. So like, you know, people talk about is statements or ought statements or something like that. So descriptive statement is just a plain statement of, of fact, you know, and the question is like whether there are evaluative facts, like it's some respect in which something is good or bad, you know, so like moral or immoral or, or, or whatever, like there are other evaluative, um, descriptions, but you know, we should have, um, mentioned that earlier on because yeah, you, yeah. you kind of need that to, to understand here that there's this distinction right, between yeah. descriptive and evaluative um but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so like evaluative statements um contain an inherently positive or negative evaluation of something they imply that something is good or bad in some way and uh descriptive statements just you know by stipulation are just all other statements so um okay so and then what was I saying? Oh, yeah, the intuitionists versus the naturalists. Uh, they also disagree about a second thing, which is how we can know evaluative truths. Uh, so the naturalists think that we know them somehow empirically. And the intuitionists think that we know them non-empirically a priori. Uh, and this is where the, the view gets its name, because um, the direct, direct non-empirical awareness is referred to as intuition. And so uh, we have intuitions about ethical truths. Um, okay, now, so in theory, there could be another position because um, naturalism and intuitionism are defined like each of them has a conjunction of two views where they disagree with the other. So in theory, there could be somebody who agreed with the naturalists on one issue, like on reducibility, but agreed with the intuitionists on the other one, like, you know, about the epistemology. But as far as I know, there are no such people, so we don't need a name for that view. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird, actually, that like the epistemic and metaphysical theses kind of go hand in hand. I mean, it does make sense on the face of it. It's like, okay, moral naturalists think that evaluative claims are reducible to descriptive claims. So somehow it just makes more sense that they think that we know these on the basis of like empirical observation versus the non-naturalist position. You know, you obviously can't observe like non-natural truths, you know, like logical truths or something like that. Um, so yeah, we know about them on the basis of intuition. So that does make sense to me. But on the other hand, like when I imagine seeing like someone torturing a baby for fun, it does kind of seem like I'm just 
like I'm perceiving some color, I'm perceiving some shapes and I'm like perceiving some wrongness, you know, like I'm just yeah. seeing the wrongness in that action. Like I just look at it. I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, when, you, you know. when you see this wrongness, what color is wrongness? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, that, and I raise that question because although I, I, I kind of understand what you mean, like there's a sense in which you could say you see the wrongness. Um, you're not seeing the wrongness in the same way that you see the physical properties, right? Well, it's still ultimately like experiential, I guess. Like it, it comes back to like my conscious experiences where it does seem like I'm like, I, I try not to use the word perception most of the time, you know, like I am more on like the non-naturalist side here. Like I, and I have no issue with like, you know, intuition and I'm like a phenomenal conservative and everything. So it's not like I'm trying to, like defend naturalism here, but it does seem like the wrongness is kind of in the world in a way that we can yeah. see, you know? Well, um, you know, I mean, like I, I like, uh, I like the way you said, well, you have an experience. I mean, in, in some sense, all of our knowledge comes from experiences, but not in the sense of the empiricists mean, <laughs> because mm. the empiricists have a restricted notion of the experiences that count, right? Namely, um, you know, observation by the five senses and maybe introspection. So, uh, and then, you know, intuitions in a sense are supposed to be experiences, but they're just different from the sensory experiences. Okay, so like, you, you know, you see the, you see this example is from um, Gilbert Harmon. You know, you see these kids who are torturing this cat and they're like uh, lighting the cat on fire or something. And you could just see that that's wrong. Uh, so, yeah, you kind of just see that it's wrong, but you don't literally just with your eyes see it. Like, um, you know, if a dog sees that, the dog's eyes are just as good as your eyes. <laughs> and and its sensory cortex is just as good. And the dog will not see the wrongness. Right. So, like, you're seeing the wrongness depends upon this um, intellectual faculty, right? And mm -hmm. probably depends on your past beliefs, like that pain is bad. And you shouldn't cause bad things without a good reason or something like that. Okay. No, that's helpful that like the empiricist makes this distinction, you know, between our experiences. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that, I mean, I don't want to go off on like a tangent here, but like all these issues about cognitive phenomenology and how certain people like just really don't want to, um, again, I don't want to like open up a can of worms here, but like the idea that some people don't want to admit that it's like something to solve a math problem or there's not something in experience when you're like, I don't know, reflecting on rational intuition or something like that does seem kind of weird to me. Like it does seem like there are obviously experiences beyond just like the five senses or something like our inner lives are like much richer than just being yeah. prodded by like stimulus. Yeah, right. So yeah, you obviously have experiences you know, other than outward observation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you think about mathematical principles and frequently you will have the sense of just seeing that it's true, but not seeing it, not seeing with your eyes, but seeing with your intellect or something like that. And uh, it's a little bit weird, I think, it's a little bit weird if you think, oh, those don't count for anything. Like you should just ignore those. And we should only, we, should, we only count the outward observation experiences. Like, why would we not count also the, intuitive experiences where, you know, something makes sense to you and you seem to see that it's obviously true or something. Yeah. We, we were talking about naturalism, which, uh, you know, holds that there are these stance independent objective moral facts, you know, but they're reducible to descriptive claims. And then, um, 
the uh, non-naturalist thinks that these evaluative truths are not reducible to descriptive truths. And in addition to that metaphysical um, difference, there's also this like epistemic difference, you know, where naturalists tend to be more like empirically minded and um, non-naturalists tend to be more, you know, rationalist and, and so on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, so like, I mean, as you were saying, you could kind of see why this would be the case. I mean, you know, what's the motivation for saying that moral facts are reducible in the first place? Like a large part of the motivation is empiricism. So they're like, yeah, no, how, how could we possibly know moral truths on the basis of observation? Because like moral truths don't look like anything. Mm -hmm. They don't have a color or a shape or whatever, like, and they don't impinge on your sense organs. So, um, okay, so like the only way to make it so that it, it sounds somewhat plausible that it could be empirical is to say, well, it's really reducible to the descriptive facts. So how does that compare to like the is ought gap? Like everyone's heard about, you know, the, uh, the gap between is and ought. And to me, I, it sounds like moral naturalists just think that the is ought gap is like illusory or can be closed and moral non-naturalists think that it can't be closed. But I think I heard somewhere that you, um, don't think that's exactly right. Like the is ought gap is not like a good way to distinguish moral naturalists and moral non-naturalists. Um, I mean, so like there's two versions of naturalism, uh, analytic naturalism and synthetic naturalism. So the analytic naturalists think that you can actually explain the meaning of moral terms using non-moral terms. And like that would imply that you can bridge the is-ought gap, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, so here's a simple natural analytic naturalist view, like good means um, causes pleasure or something. So... Okay, and then like and that's actually what it means. So then this would be a valid inference. You know, X causes pleasure, therefore X is good. Hmm. And so that bridges the Isaac gap. <laughs> so, okay, uh, but you know that I think that view was refuted by G.E. Moore. Um, not everyone agrees with that, but anyway, like yeah, I think G.E. Moore refuted that, and um, most naturalists agree actually that G.E. Moore was right. Good doesn't just mean causes pleasure or anything else that doesn't contain evaluative terms. However, it is possible to have a reductionist theory in which you don't, you don't make claims about meaning. Okay, so um, like this is a reductionist theory. Red is um, a certain range of wavelengths of light, but that's not what the word red means. You know, like there are plenty of people who understand the word red and don't know anything about wavelengths of light when you teach a child what red is, like you don't tell the child about wavelengths of light. So it looks like that's not the meaning, but that is a correct theoretical explanation of the property. Okay, so like the synthetic naturalists think, yeah, you can give a correct theoretical explanation of the nature of goodness or rightness or whatever, uh, even though you can't explain the meaning of the word. And G.E. Moore's arguments don't refute that. And, that. and I agree with that. He didn't refute that view, right? Um, Okay, so so there's you know this distinction between analytic and synthetic naturalist sounds kind of similar to the distinction between a priori physicalism and a posteriori physicalism, where the a posteriori physicalists at least admit that there's like a conceptual 
like epistemic gap, you know, like they admit there's something there with the hard problem. Like, yeah, you can conceive of like zombies or like qualia inversion or something like that. But um, whereas the a priori physicalists are like, no, there's not even a conceptual dualism that's acceptable. Um, but yeah, it kind of sounds like something similar with the analytic and synthetic naturalists. So like natural analytic naturalists literally like deny the Izot gap or say it's an illusion. Whereas like the synthetic naturalists would at least admit that there is like an epistemic is out gap. Like they're making this distinction between like the semantics of moral language and like, you know, the actual, I don't know, like metaphysics of moral claims, moral terms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that seems right. Uh, you know, like in the, in the philosophy of mind, um, there, there are these people who made claims about, I, I guess about the meanings of, um, psychological vocabulary, right? Like, um, you know, pain just refers to a certain disposition to behave in a certain way, right? And so, like, that's like the analytic naturalist. Um, and, you know, obviously false. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what you would want, you would want to have a synthetic reductionist view in philosophy of mind. Like, it's, an, it's a synthetic and empirical fact that the mind is the brain or something like that. Right. Now, uh, I don't know how many people actually have that view. My impression is that the great majority of people in philosophy of mind are um, they're analytic functionalists. Like, they think mental state terms can just be analyzed conceptually as functional kinds. So, like, um, you know, pain is just a state with certain kinds of causal connections to other mental states and, you know, stimuli in the environment, right? And also behavior. I think that, um, I mean, I think there's a very loud minority of like a priori physicalists, but I think they are the minority. Like, I think the vast majority of physicalists are, are a posteriori physicalists. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. We have, to, you know, I we think have some philosophers of mind in here. I can't remember if I think that because of the Phil paper survey or because some physicalists told me that, but it seems like I hear it all the time from physicalists, but I don't know. Oh, uh, no, I think, I think they're probably um, answering your question deceptively. <laughs> so like they're, they're probably answering the question the way that they think is true, but is not answering what you wanted. <laughs> so, um, because I think the majority of, um, the majority of people in philosophy of mind are like analytic functionalists. Like I said, like they think it's an analytic truth that um you know mental you have a certain mental state if and only if you have a certain functional state but they think that it's an empirical fact that physical states are what in fact satisfy those functional kinds hmm. so right so they would say oh no no no, i'm not saying that it's you know you're that mental states are necessarily physical because there could have been some non-physical thing that had some properties with the same functional um, characteristics, right? And then you would have had mental states. So just to return to the anti-realists, though, um, obviously there are, like, many subdivisions, you know, like, anti-realists and realists have, like, you know, tons of disagreements, but there are these three broad positions that you can fall into as an anti-realist and, you know, possibly some combination of them, but still, there are, like, these three broad options where um, if you think that moral statements are like not even expressing propositions, like they're not even making claims about the world, they're not, you're not talking about beliefs that people have, then you're some kind of non-cognitivist or expressivist, you know, like a really crude form of it is just like, yay, not stealing and like boo murder, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, so th those are not like cognitively meaningful propositions. They're just like, yay. Um, and then there's, 
you know, subjectivism, which thinks that, no, these are cognitively meaningful propositions. You know, it's just that they constitutively depend on observers or an observer um, yeah. or groups of observers. Um, and then you've got, so they're not objective, but then you've got like error theorists slash nihilists who think like, no, these are cognitively meaningful propositions. And they're not like subjective in the sense that the subjectivists think. So people are trying to make these statements of fact and they're all just wrong. You know, like there are no such properties. There are no objective moral properties. Like these are just things that we made up, you know, um, yeah. maybe they can be explained through like evolutionary history or something, but there are no such objective moral properties. So it's actually not true that it's like wrong to torture babies for fun. Yeah. You know, the Holocaust wasn't bad in like any real sense. It, it was just, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, just I'm starting to get, get like. into yeah, some people really liked it. Some other people uh, thought it was not good. And fortunately, <laughs> the, the people who like, you know, happened to prefer the um, not killing Jews ice cream, you know, prevailed. Um, yeah. But the people who liked the killing Jews ice cream, um, they lost, thankfully. Yeah. But, you know, they lost. Yeah, thankfully to us. But, you know, there's no, there's no fact about who was right. There's no being right. Or actually, they were both wrong. Right, you know, they, uh, like the Nazis thought that it was good to kill Jews, and then the Allies thought that it was bad. But they were both mistaken. It was neither good nor bad. Um, but we didn't like it, so we're happy. We're happy that we beat them because we didn't like them. Right. So yeah, some people, um, some anti-realists, I think, might be slightly upset <laughs> at the the way that we're, um, you know, talking about yeah. like their position. But like, it's not. It's difficult because when you just accurately describe their view, it sounds like you're strawmanning them because like their beliefs are kind of absurd, but you know, they don't literally go around saying like the Holocaust wasn't bad or like, Oh, Hitler wasn't, uh, you know, evil or, you know, they don't literally, like if you say, Hey, are, are you a pro Hitler? They'll be like, no, <laughs> like he was bad. You know, the Holocaust was bad. It was wrong to do that. But then, you know, in like the philosophy classroom, they, they say the opposite thing. Yeah. And something they'll say is that our moral statements don't really imply like a factual status or like that they don't um, imply that these judgments are true. So like they feel like they have no issue with saying like, oh, well, the Holocaust was wrong, but there's nothing wrong with gay marriage and, you know, stealing is wrong. But, um, you know, this other thing is totally fine, you know, and this other action is good and so on and so forth. And they're just like, well, look, I don't think that it is a fact that the Holocaust was wrong. You know, like I would never say that's completely crazy. Like I would never say it's true that the Holocaust was wrong. That's completely different from saying yeah. the Holocaust was wrong. So they're trying to draw this like extremely tenuous distinction between like the Holocaust was wrong, which is totally fine. Yeah. And then it's true that the Holocaust is wrong, or it is a fact yeah. that the Holocaust is wrong. But it seems like that's just implied. Like whenever you make any statement about anything, it's implied that you think it's true. Like yeah. you know, I, you, you well, know, yeah. unless it's like unless it's obviously subjective, you know. But like, yeah. um, when you're making statements like that, you know, of that form, it just seems implied that you're saying, and it's a fact that this is true. It's not like you say, oh well, yeah. you know, the Holocaust is wrong. And you say. Um, is that true? It's like, no, it's completely false. <laughs> like, yeah, well, yeah, imagine me saying, you know, it's raining outside, but that's not true. It's, it's not, I'm not saying it's true that it's raining, but it's raining. I'm not saying it's a fact that it's raining. Like, that would be very strange. Okay, but I mean, you know, it may be that you're talking to people who 
aren't sure what form of anti-realism they're trying to advance, right? So like that thing makes sense if you're a non-cognitivist. You, so, you know, you're like, yeah, it's not, it's not true because this isn't a, like an assertion, right? I'm not saying it's true that hooray for the Broncos because that doesn't make <laughs> sense. I'm just saying hooray for the Broncos. Um, uh, I, I don't think it makes sense for the nihilists. Like, you know, like it's like it's not cool to say P, but that's false, right? And their view is that the moral statements are false. So it's like it's not cool to say them. It's not appropriate. Um, then, you know, if you're a subjectivist, then I think you should say, you know, make the moral statements and you should say they're true. <laughs> Right? Like, no, it's, tr it's true that murder is wrong. It's true that the Holocaust was bad because it's true that we disapprove of it. What's your problem? <laughs> right? um, okay, but then they would also have to say, yeah, but, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's true for us. But, of course, if you were in Nazi Germany, then for you, the Holocaust would be good. Right. It's the it's the killing Jews ice cream versus the not killing Jews ice cream. You know, people feel different ways about it. Who's to say? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just reporting how I feel about it. You know, I feel bad about it. Other people, I don't like it. Other people like it. You know, but anyway, but that's true. It's And it's a fact. It's not objective. It's a subjective fact. But yeah. So, I mean, so you, it sounds like you agree that like, it, like torturing a child is wrong versus it's true that a child torturing a child is wrong. Like that, that is, these are apparently very different according to some of the anti-realists I'm talking to. There's a vast chasm between these two <laughs> things, but it seems like saying torturing a child is wrong is the same thing as it's true that torturing a child is wrong. It seems kind of implied. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like, I mean, like I say, it could be different if you're a non-cognitivist, right? And you think that these aren't, aren't truth claims in the first place, right? But yeah, um, you know, I mean, like when, when you first mentioned nihilism, uh, people might wonder like, well, why would anybody hold this view? Like, why would somebody say, no, the Holocaust wasn't bad? Like, what's the argument for that other than being a Nazi, <laughs> right? Which they're not because they don't think it was good either. <laughs> so anyway, like, um, why would somebody hold that view? Well, basically they were convinced by the realist arguments against the other two forms of anti-realism, right? So like, um, you know, if you, you think about the arguments against non-cognitivism, like there are really strong arguments that moral statements are intended to express propositions. They're not just supposed to be expressions of emotion. And, you know, like as a matter of, in fact, the conventions of English, right? Like, you know, like trying to correctly describe how English works, murder is wrong is not an expressive statement. It is an assertion. <laughs> And, like, and, you know, there are linguistic tests that show that, okay? And so, like, the nihilists hear those arguments and they're convinced because they're good arguments, right? But then also there are good arguments that the truth of a moral statement doesn't depend on the attitudes of observers. So, you know, you say, okay, well, like, if you're living in a society, you know, to go back to the Nazi example, if you're living in a society where they approve, your society approves of sending Jews to concentration camps, does that mean you should do that, right? Or if you yourself are also a Nazi when you're in that society, right? So, you know, whether you think that the, it depends on the attitudes of you personally or the society, then the view would imply, oh, so then you should help um, send the Jews to the concentration camps. Okay, and that seems wrong. And moreover, um, that's not the way moral language works. Like in this whole like moral talk game, right? You're not, it's not, like one of the principles just based on the meaning of wrong 
that something is not wrong as long as enough people approve of it, right? So anyway, okay, so the, the nihilists hear this and they're like, oh yeah, that's right, like it's not. So it is supposed to assert matters of fact and they're not supposed to be dependent on our attitudes. So it's, moral statements are supposed to be making assertions of objective fact, but then the nihilists are like, yeah, but there aren't any objective value facts. So it has to be that all of the statements are false. And so then that's where you get to, well, murder isn't wrong. <laughs> because murder is wrong implies that wrongness exists subjectively, exists objectively, but it doesn't, so it's false, right? I'm like, okay. But, you know, like, it seems kind of crazy. Yeah, and, and they are aware that it sounds crazy, so they sometimes attempt to, like, rephrase moral statements, and I think that's why they would get... Um, annoyed with some of the stuff I was saying earlier, like, oh, you're straw manning me. I, it's not that I, I mean, obviously I think the Holocaust was wrong. I just don't think it was wrong. You know, stop yeah. straw manning me. And then, like, they have like different meanings of. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they would say, well, I was against it. Or, or you know, <laughs> they probably weren't alive during the time. But anyway, I now have bad feelings about it. I have a <laughs> negative attitude towards it. Right. But it wasn't. It's not that it had the property of wrongness, right? So. Right. Well, I, the one paper that I've read about this that someone sent to me is like, you know, oh, well, I'm an error theorist, but like, here's what I mean. Like, here's why I still walk around and you know, I, I walk the earth like a normal person making evaluative judgments, um, even though I'm an error theorist. And the answer was something like fictionalism. It was a paper by someone named Joyce who um, said like, yeah. yeah, yeah, Richard Joyce, who said that... Um, you know, th th this is just a form of fictionalism. Like, it's a useful fiction, you know, which is something that Mackey apparently suggested at the very end of his his book about error theory. And yeah. they're like, look, fictionalism is, like, not a crazy position. So, you know, moral fiction fictionalism is, like, yeah, yeah. not a crazy well, position. But. Yeah, so, like, I, as an analogy, you know, somebody asks you, um, hey, uh, was, was Jar Jar Binks a Sith Lord? And then you go, no, 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 he's just a Gungan, whatever. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, the person goes, Oh, so you think Jar Jar Binks existed, right? <laughs> so he said he was a bumbling Gungan, whatever. Um, that implies that he existed. So, you know, don't you know that the whole, all of those were fictional stories? So anyway, like if you're, if you're in a group of Star Wars fans and they're talking about the movies, you just talk about the things in the movies that, and as if they were real. So, and Darth Vader did this and then whatever. Okay. So, you know, you might think, it, you know, if, even if you're a nihilist, you sort of like go along with this discourse about these fictional moral properties and just participate in the game. Um, and, you know, like within the game, there are correct and incorrect statements. So actually there's, you know, there's some good evidence that Jar Jar is a Sith Lord. So that's not, not a good example. So let's say somebody says Han Solo was a Sith Lord, right? You're like, no. So that is an incorrect statement in the Star Wars universe. So you might say, if somebody says, oh, the Holocaust was justified. No, that's an incorrect statement within the whole like moral talk framework. Right? <laughs> within the moral verse, it's, um, it was wrong, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, but you know, even after you say that, like I would still wonder, okay, so like um, you can kind of make sense of people making these statements when they're within they're like playing this sort of language game or whatever, mm -hmm. but it would be hard to understand why you would make major sacrifices because of those statements, right? So like, okay, so if I think Jar Jar was a Sith Lord, I'm not now going to plan my life 
according to the facts about Jar Jar and the, and the fictional Star Wars characters. I'm not going to behave in the way that I would if I thought those things were real. So, like, I'm not going to, like, look for Jedi to help me or, whatever, like, or, you know, try to use the Force or something the way I would if I literally believed statements about the Force, okay? So it's very strange if you think that after making fictional statements about moral properties, you would behave just as if they were real. Right. Yeah, it, there's, you know, because I, I do defend, like, religious fictionalists you know like i think that's yeah. like a legitimate thing but there is obviously like a distinction between fictionalists and non-fictionalists like you know it, it's not that secular jews are liars you know or like people who are like christian fictionalists are like lying or something but clearly there's a difference if you think that there's a god who's like commanding you to to like you know keep kosher or something you know because i know some secular jews i know some like observant like you know I don't know, non-fictionalist Jews just, um, and they, um, yeah, like they just have completely different attitudes about almost everything because like some of them literally believe it and some of them, you know, just kind of respect the tradition and like they have other reasons for following it. But they, I mean, I don't know if fictionalism is the most apt description of secular Judaism, but, um, yeah. still it's like, there are some people who literally believe it and some people who think that it's like worth playing the game, even though they don't like literally think it's true, but there's still an obvious difference, you know, between the people who literally think it's true and the people who don't. And yeah, I don't know why you would make any yeah. serious sacrifices um, if you're just some kind of moral fictionalist. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, so like, let's say, oh, you know, you read Peter Singer's arguments about uh, famine relief and you're like, wow, okay, I'm obligated to give money to charity. And now, um, and you're supposed to like give away a lot. <laughs> like, so I got to give away thousands of dollars, right? Okay, but then I reflect on the fact that, yeah, but that's all just like a fiction. So like, what would be my rational reason for doing it? After I recognize that according to the game, I'm supposed to give away whatever, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so what? <laughs> um, if I thought that they were like objective moral properties, right? Like the, on the realist view, well, there's no so what question, like you automatically have reason to do that. But if the thing is just fictional, then it's unclear how it gives you a reason. Maybe it gives you a reason because like you just like playing this game, like when you're playing um, chess and you're just like playing that, okay? Because it's fun, but like, man, it's gotta be super fun to justify giving away $10,000, right? <laughs> right? And I just don't think it is. <laughs> yeah. Um so I, I take it that you're not very impressed by the anti-realist attempts to like rephrase moral statements into something that's like acceptable to them. Um, one thing I've learned about listening to moral anti-realists, especially error theorists, is that there are seemingly zero implications of moral anti-realism, according to anti-realists. Like you might, you know, you might think naively that um, rejecting like all moral claims as false might have like some discernible impact on your life. Um, but apparently I'm a moron for thinking that that would be the case. So I just hear it all the time that like, if you try to draw out the implications of their view and be like, hey, doesn't that seem implausible? Or like, shouldn't, if you think that like nothing is wrong, shouldn't that influence your behavior in some way? Like, you know, like once I stopped thinking that God was real, there was a discernible impact on my behavior. You know, like I started behaving differently because there was this thing that I thought existed for most of my life. And then I stopped thinking it was real 
And then my behavior changed as a result. But they're just like, yeah, you know, I used to naively think that things were like right or wrong. And then now I don't think that. And I behave in exactly the same way as I did before. Yes, that is very strange, right? And, you know, also strange if you just keep saying the same things. Like you think wrongness doesn't exist, but you still go around. You're talking to other people about what's right and wrong. And like, okay. And like, is there any other area in which this happens? Like where atheists just go around talking about what God wants all the time. Like, that would be really weird. And then, like, you know, after like, after you become an atheist, you still keep going to church, you keep praying. It's like, okay, say, oh, God, God will be very, uh, you know, God is angry with you, you know, for violating, like, his commands. And it's like, I thought you were an atheist. And it's like, I am, you know, yeah. stop straw manning me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, but I'm just, like, expressing my feelings or something like Okay. Um, now, you know, you might say, uh, you know, the anti-realists, um, you know, to try to, I don't know, try to take their side, they'd be like, well, I mean, there's a difference in that, um, you know, there are moral attitudes and um, there are non-cognitive moral attitudes, which could explain your behavior. Like, you know, you still have feelings of disapproval and that explains why you try to stop people from doing the things that you disapprove of, um, even if you don't have the belief that they're wrong. And now you might say that's not analogous to religion because it, there aren't additional attitudes besides the beliefs, right? Like you believe that God wants you to do X and then if you take away that belief, well, there's not like some other thing there, <laughs> like a, a religious attitude that doesn't depend on the beliefs, maybe. Right, but I don't, know, I don't know if that's true. Maybe there is still a religious habit. In, in some cases, like, I don't think that, like, Christian fictionalism is crazy. You know, like, it's more prevalent, I guess, in, like, um, like Western Europe or something. Like, people who still go to church and honor the tradition and stuff, like, they still participate in something resembling a religious life, even though they're like, well, I mean, I don't, like, literally think that, like, God commanded this or, you know, inspired the Bible or something like that. So, you know, I really don't think that fictionalism is crazy in, in many, many contexts, but it's like, you know, you have to look at the specific area and like flesh it out. Like it, it might be crazy to be a fictionalist in some areas, even though it's like totally fine to be a fictionalist about, about some things. Yeah. I mean, so I care might be an example. Let's say, okay, maybe, you know, you had some religious attitudes. And so like you feel approval and disapproval based upon what you learned about, um, what the Christian God wants or something, then you became an atheist and like, okay, so now you have negative views about abortion because you're taught that God hates abortion and then you became an atheist. So now you believe that he doesn't hate abortion, but you still have negative attitudes about abortion. <laughs> uh, you know, don't believe, don't believe it because he doesn't exist. Right. But, right. Okay. But now you're, you know, you get pregnant and um, you're thinking of having an abortion and like, the costs of going through with the pregnancy are very high. But if abortion is like seriously wrong, like murder or something like, um, you would still go through with it, right? But so it, it looks like this is a case in which you would have different behavior depending on whether you really believe that there's a God or alternately you really believe that abortion is morally wrong in a way comparable to how murder is wrong, right? Right. And then like, you know, and if you don't believe either of those things, but you just have negative feelings about abortion, it seems like 
the rational thing would be to just get over those feelings so that you don't have to go through this really high cost. Right. Well, I mean, another example that, you know, it actually does happen with a lot of people is um, feelings towards like gay marriage, like where there really is no independent reason to be against gay marriage unless you're some kind of theist. Like there's a really strong correlation between theism and like opposition to gay marriage. And once you become an atheist or if you're some kind of like fictionalist or something, then pretty much all of those people, like the vast majority of those people are totally fine with gay marriage. Whereas the realists and like the literalists, like they are not fine with gay marriage. So it really just comes down to if there's some kind of independent motivation for whatever moral claim is, is at stake. So like in the case of opposition to gay marriage, there's like virtually no independent support for opposition to gay marriage, like outside of like literalist, realist, theistic beliefs. And once you get rid of those, then your behavior discernibly changes. But that might not be the case with like, you know, stealing because there's independent reason not to not to steal, unlike, yeah. you know, gay marriage. Sure. Yeah. No, stealing negatively impacts my life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if there's a lot of stealing going around in society, but gay marriage doesn't negatively impact me. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a good example. So because, um, you know, illustrate some of the complexity of, of human psychology because uh, I think that, you know, what's going on, okay, so I think you're right that there's a connection with religion, but it's a little bit weird because the religious people don't take on board everything that the Bible says, right? So like they, um, even the people who think gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married, typically don't think that you should stone them to death, even though the Bible does say that, okay? Mm -hmm. And then, and why not? Well, because they have like some independent moral judgment, okay? And so it's like, they have a negative feeling about gay marriage. They have a negative feeling about homosexuality in general. And so that leads them to think that, or it leads them to feel that gay marriage would be wrong, but they don't have such a negative feeling that they want to murder them. And like, they have a negative feeling about murdering people. <laughs> okay, but then, so then you might think, but is, is the religious belief playing any role? And I think basically the role that it's playing is that, um, you know, like you have these negative feelings and then you sort of like reach for an explanation. And if you can find a cognitive explanation, like you can find an explanation in terms of your beliefs for why this negative feeling is justified, then you feel justified in acting on it and like supporting policies based on it. Okay, but if you, you know, when you give up the beliefs and then, you know, you think that it's just a negative feeling and, I, and there's no like basis for it. Um, then you don't feel justified, right? So, like, so that's my explanation. Like, so even even if they have the same feelings before and after becoming an atheist, right? Like, the religious person would support legal restrictions that the atheist wouldn't, right? Yeah. Um, do you want to get into some popular objections to realism? Like, we've um, we've really only touched on we've mostly been talking about anti-realism, but do you want to yeah. talk about some like a couple popular arguments against it first? Yeah, um, I mean, I want to say like you know why why you should be a realist in the first place or something like, and the answer is that it's obvious. <laughs> so that is, you can think about you can think about some kinds of actions that just seem obviously wrong, and then and you know and it doesn't seem like it's wrong because observers are going to take some attitude towards it. It seems like it's wrong regardless of the attitudes the observers have towards it. So, you know, like pushing Jews into the gas chambers, like that seems wrong and even, and it would be wrong even if we approved of it. 
and say, okay. And like that just, you know, that just seems intuitively obvious. I start from everything is the way that it appears unless there's some good reason to think otherwise. Right. So, and I, like, I think a lot of what happens is that people, a lot of why there's disagreement is that people start from different places and think that the other side has the burden of proof, right? So, like you start out who has the burden of proof and then whoever has the burden of proof, they automatically lose. <laughs> so like, like not automatically, but they always lose because you can never prove something to the satisfaction of the other person, you know, who's starting from the contrary presumption and, you know, they just like, don't, don't grant anything. So anyway, so if the presumption is everything's false until you prove that it's true, like nothing exists unless you prove that it exists, then you're not going to prove that moral values exist. Like if I have to prove starting from non-value statements that there are value facts, um, that's, that's not going to work. Right. Right. Okay. But, and so I think like anti-realists are largely people who just think that that's the presumption. You just start out by assuming that there aren't any moral properties, you know, and then somebody has to prove that there are right. And then, okay, they can't do that. But I think that, no, you start out by assuming that everything is the way that it seems. And then, and from there, there's, there's just not a good argument against moral properties existing. Like the arguments that people give to me are just very flimsy. They're like, they're, they rely on premises that are way less plausible than the moral statements that they're trying to undermine. All right. So like, you know, this would be like um, a favorite argument from anti-realists. Um, this might be the most popular argument in, in philosophy because I've read it over <laughs> and over again. Okay. If there were moral facts, they would, beliefs about them would intrinsically motivate action independent of your desires. But it's impossible for a belief to motivate action independent of desires. Therefore, there are no moral facts. Okay, so you're supposed to think, yeah, I don't know. You think you could think about whether you believe those premises or not, right? But like, so it depends on a particular view about what what objective values are supposed to be, that they're supposed to be things that as soon as you see them, they force you to behave in a certain way, right? Or at least they push you, right? Maybe there could be other influences, right? So you don't always do the thing, but they push you to behave in a certain way just by their nature. Okay. And um, all right, so there's two premises there, right? One is that uh, beliefs about moral truths would have to be intrinsically motivating. And that's sort of like supposed to be an analysis of like moral concepts or something. Uh, and then, I mean, it's supposed to be like inherent in the in the notion of an objective value. Okay. And then the other premise is, but nothing could have that characteristic. And like, are those things both obvious? Well, I don't know, but they are way less obvious than it's wrong to torture people for fun. Right. So right. like you're trying to use those premises to show that it's not wrong. And I think, that <laughs> I should, you know, I should modus tollens your opponents, right? I think that's a reductio. Yeah. No, I, and I think that people act like the like sometimes the Morian shift is like illegitimate or something. Like but it's it's obviously a good thing to carry out the implications of a theory and then like ask which seems like more plausible. The conjunction of every weird abstract step that you had to take to get to this anti-realist position, or just like the plain statement of moral facts. So like, yeah, the Morian shift is a perfectly legitimate move to make. Like, just look at these statements. Like, which do you think is more plausible, A or B? And if you've got a list of things that are that are incompatible with each other, um, 
Like this is one thing that you say in knowledge, reality, and value. Like this is the consistent problem that skeptics have over and over and over again, where you list out the things that are all incompatible. And what skeptics do is they pick the most plausible one and they're like, yeah. that's the one I'm going to get rid of. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, you should you should pick the least plausible one. And like, even if it has some like prima facie intuitive plausibility, like, um, you know, like the things you were saying earlier, this very popular argument against realism, like all those premises, like, you know, they don't sound crazy, but if you're comparing them to this other proposition, like it's wrong to torture babies for the hell of it, like then one of those seems more plausible than the other. You shouldn't pick the most plausible yeah. one and say like, let's get rid of this one. But like skeptics, and this is like a general problem with like this type of person. Like they do this all the time. Like this general, I, I don't know. It's like a like deflationary like impulse, I guess, that some philosophers have. Like um, some people, I think like you, don't really care if there's like a a bunch of things in their ontology, I guess. Like, there's like a, it's like, yeah, the world is, the universe is really it's weird. A world. You know? <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's a big world. There's a lot of stuff. The universe is weird. You might have, you maybe you've encountered this in your own experiences that the universe is very weird and uh, diverse. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then there are other people who want to like deflate everything. So there's just like one type of stuff and like that's it. And like there's, you know, like they they want like this really nice and neat and simple and tidy ontology and epistemology. And, um, yeah. you know, so there's like this general like deflationary impulse. And like, I don't really know what to call them. Like, the, you know, the skeptics or anti-realists or reductionists or deflationists. Like there are just these types of people in philosophy who are like my arch enemies <laughs> in philosophy who are constantly doing this with everything. But yeah, they're generally more anti-realists for the same kind of reason. Um, yeah, they're mm. just like, what are these things? You know, th these don't exist like atoms. Like these aren't like physical particles. Like how could these things even exist? You know, like um, yeah, other I mean, than it seems. Suppose I say, well, I, you know, how could atoms even exist? <laughs> What's the answer to that? I don't know. The, the idealists used to say things like that, right? They were like, well, obviously there are minds and experiences, but how could there possibly be matter? I kind of, and you know, there's no answer to that. I mean, it's just it's just there. There's no like explanation of how it can be there. It just is there, right? And anyway, you know, that's how that's how all the fundamental things are. You know, yeah. there's not not really an explanation, right? Um, yeah, so, um, but we were talking about, you know, these, like, skeptics and, and anti-realists and stuff who get rid of moral truths because um, it's in conflict with other far more dubious uh, beliefs that seem plausible. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that is something that I do encounter, though. Like, um, I thought you were going to say moral disagreement was the most popular argument. But, like, something that I do encounter all the time, though, is, like, you know, how do ethical truths exist? Like they don't exist spatio like in space or time, you know? So like how, like they don't exist like physical particles. So how yeah. could they exist? Like, yeah. where do they, like, they just don't really How could there to, be uh, something that's not physical? Yeah. <laughs> well, how could there be something that's physical? Like in the same way, like there's no answer. There's no how something can be when it's a fundamental category. Right. But anyway, um, you know, there's like, there are multiple things that aren't physical, right? Like, you know, the number two is not a physical object, so how? Well, they, these people, two? these people would probably be nominalists as well, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, like they want to like no deflate two, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, I'm you know I'm just going to disagree with them about everything. So. <laughs> uh, you know, like the mind and consciousness. Like, how can consciousness exist? I I don't know, but I know <laughs> it exists. <laughs> like, I don't know why it exists, but it definitely exists, and it's not physical.
Mm-hmm. Okay, then, you know, and they would probably say, no, no, it is physical. It's just a brain process, right? So then, like, you know, then we have to have, like, three side ar- arguments about nominalism versus realism and um, you know, another one about consciousness and then another one about values. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, at some point, like, if there are too many parts of, like, the seemingly obvious common sense worldview that you're throwing out all to maintain, um, you know, so, like, you use your uncommonsensical views about multiple different things to support each other, right? Then, you mm-hmm. know, at some point, uh, you're being irrational, right? Like, yeah, but there's this veneer of like, things. yeah, but like for them, it's like, that seems anti-scientific, you know, cause we don't know about these things through science ultimately. Like there's no, yeah. um, so I think that there is this like kind of false you know, veneer of plausibility to some of their views. Cause they're like, look, I just like, I'm just like yeah. following the science, you know, like, um, you know, so yeah, like, scientists yeah. have shown that there are no values. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, what experiment did they do? <laughs> like so that if there are values, you would get a different observed result. No, I mean, well, I mean, it's unscientific to assume things based upon just like whatever, how you feel, like you feel that something is weird. So therefore you assume that it's not the case. No, that's not scientific, right? Like, you know, scientific is, um, you start with an open mind and then you're like, you try to conduct experiments or something like that, but there's no experiments, right? That, that show you whether values exist. Um, so what's actually happening is, well, scientists study certain topics and like, they don't seem to be studying value. And so then you're like, oh, okay, well, all good things, all good um, fields of study have to be like science and the scientists are not studying values. So let's just like reject values. And then we're going to feel like we're, you know, sort of we're, we're worshiping science effectively or something like we're showing our respect for science by just rejecting everything that isn't science. Right. Like that's, what's really going on, but that's a totally non-scientific way of thinking. Like that's an ideological way of thinking. Yeah. No, I mean, this is a whole other conversation and I haven't found a way of talking about this where I don't like, I, I hesitate to even bring it up, but like, I agree there is this kind of like ideological overtone to some of the way to, to the way that some of these people think like is clearly ideological and clearly like a product of the time they live in. And they just don't seem to be aware of that, like, or, or they are aware of it, but they're fine with it because they're like, well, we're at like the most advanced stage of human history in terms of you know, knowledge about how the world works. So of course I just adopt, you know, the way that the best, the best method we have for figuring out the way the world works is science. So yeah, like obviously I'm going to bet on science every single time. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a deeper conversation that I think it's like, this is just a weird period of history where people are adopting all kinds of insane beliefs that, you know, like, just like we look back at people 500 years ago, like how the hell did they believe this weird stuff? And it is like vaguely connected to religion, you know, that sort of, epistemic paradigm that they were operating on and we're operating on a different one but we accept these beliefs that i think are or at least there are these you know we don't all accept these beliefs but like there are some very strange forms of irrationality that i think are like specifically a product of this time and like this culture and like the valuing of science above all else i feel like is a pretty key component of that yeah that's right you know like uh, peter van inwagen refers to this as scientism right and you know, he describes it as a, a sort of exaggerated respect for science that is the physical and biological sciences and a corresponding disparagement of all other areas of human intellectual endeavor. And then, you know, like the the victims of scientism, um, it's, you know, it's just like, 
it's just pervading their their entire view of the world and everything and like um they're so dogmatically convinced and on such little basis like but I, like i think it's it's crucially important like i don't know if a person is prepared to think rationally it's crucially important to distinguish between something actually being scientifically supported like there's scientific evidence for it and then you're believing something just because having that belief kind of fits with being a science worshiper and the second thing is not scientific right and so like yeah and you might want to do it anyway even though it's not scientific but like we should draw that distinction right because there being scientific evidence for something is like way better justification than it just fits with like my feelings about how great science is. Mm -hmm. It has like sciencey vibes to it. Like even though this isn't scientific, it has kind of, you know, the right feel to it. And this other thing, even though it's not really in conflict with science and it, it yeah. is, we know about it on the basis of other things. It's like, well, this just doesn't really have the right feel to it. Like someone who, like, I think someone, I can't remember who said this, but Someone on Twitter said that um, the the correct definition of naturalism is just stuff you could say to a scientist without them laughing at you. Like, that's what it actually means to be a naturalist. Well, it depends on the scientist. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You know, a bunch of scientists are uh, religious, so, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> um, yeah, Isaac Newton was like, uh, I think he spent, you know, the end of his life... Um, doing theology type stuff so i don't know he would probably laugh at you if you said there was no god and, yeah you know. I, it's it's uncomfortable for some of these people because it, you don't even have to go as far back as isaac newton like because i mean i guess they would just say well he was like an early you know he was yeah, early in the history of science but like there are more recent people you know like people like einstein or some of the founders of like quantum mechanics for instance like they had all kinds of beliefs that they that people today or at least these people who we're talking about would consider like spooky or unscientific or like crazy like a lot of those early um like 20th century physicists were idealists and panpsychists even which is something i've been you know somewhat surprised to learn but they had really interesting views about consciousness um most yeah. a lot of them if not most of them were not materialists but materialism has the right like sciencey kind of feel to it you know, yeah. so people are like, oh, they just kind of assume that all these people would be materialists, even though um, it's just historically not true. It's like easy to check up on. Yeah, yeah. No, like, um, you know, like, I, so I don't have the list, but like, you know, there there are bunches of scientists who believe in consciousness and, you know, believe in morality and believe in God even and all this stuff. So. I know that doesn't seem good, but you know, it doesn't seem like that good of a um, definition of naturalism or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and anyway, you know, like, I don't know, I'm being repetitive, but like the way that an actual scientist thinks isn't, um, you know, like the argument from laughter, <laughs> like, you know, like this is not a scientific way of figuring out what's true. Like if you feel like laughing at something and you reject it, or like you look, you survey other people and see if they laugh at it, or like the right. thing feels weird to you or something like that. None of that is scientific, right? Mm -hmm. Like a real scientific way of thinking is I start with an open mind. I don't, I assume that I don't know what exists and what's true. And then, you know, then I have to like look for evidence. You know, we have been talking, you started talking a little bit about phenomenal conservatism, which if people want a more thorough discussion of that, they can see our previous conversation on this channel where we talked about, um, yeah, phenomenal conservatism for, for a couple hours. But um, it's pretty crucial to, 
your view of, uh, you know, moral objectivity, you know, you're a moral non-naturalist and um, specifically an ethical intuitionist. So you've got this metaphysical thesis of ethical non-naturalism, and then you've got the epistemic thesis of like phenomenal conservatism. And that's, that's basically what ethical non-naturalism is, right? It's like the, the epistemic thesis of phenomenal conservatism with the metaphysical thesis of um, ethical non-naturalism. Is that like accurate? Uh, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to say like, um, yeah, the, the reason, so the, you know, phenomenal conservatism is basically the idea that, well, it's reasonable to assume that things are the way that they appear unless you have a reason for doubting that. So, and, uh, um, there's a, you know, particular type of mental state that you have where something seems to you to be the case. So I'm saying that's a type of experience. It's not a belief the type of experience you can have. And then a species of that is sensory appearances where like, uh, you know, look down and there looks to be a table there. Okay. That's an example of something seeming to you, but also there's another species where you think about something intellectually and it just seems correct to you. Okay. And so as a species of that, um, you know, sometimes you think about some possible action and it seems to you to be a wrong action. Right. And so, okay. So like what I'm saying we start with is, well, let's start by just assuming that the things that seem wrong are wrong, you know, unless and until we have a reason to think otherwise. And then like the, the reason for being a realist is that, well, okay, you think you have to think through the th three different versions of anti-realism and then they all just have very counterintuitive implications. You know, so like the nihilist view implies that, oh, it's not wrong to torture people for fun. And, and, you know, the non-cognitivist view implies that, well, it doesn't make sense to say if such and such is wrong, then something else is the case, right? And then the subjectivist view implies, you know, it's it's actually correct that if we were to approve of torturing people, it would be right, okay? And so, like, all those seem wrong. So, like, it's not that realism is directly intuitive. It's that these, you know, premises are intuitive that refute the three versions of anti-realism. Right. And, um, I don't know, people have this like black and white approach to phenomenal conservatism that I've, I've noticed sometimes, like if you say anything nice about intuition, then people will, you know, they'll immediately point to like appearances that are like deceptive or something like that. So, you know, phenomenal conservatism is not the idea that you should just believe all appearances, like full stop, you know, like you have, you just held up a book at the beginning of our conversation that's um pretty large about ethical intuitionism. So, I mean, like just the existence of that book should like, <laughs> yeah, if it's just like, well, it seems to me that moral realism is true, the end, like yeah. then that book would be like one page long, <laughs> but um, it's, you know, it's obviously, they, they are suffering from some kind of misunderstanding of phenomenal conservatism if they think that it's just, you know, it seems to me that this is the case and uh, I'm not convinced by any of the defeaters so end of story like there's still a place for evidence and still a place for arguments and like reasoning about things which is why that book is very long and uh, not very short yeah yeah so the view is not that um appearances end the investigation <laughs> like you just look at how things appear and then that's the end of the story the view is that that is the beginning right as you start from the way things appear not that that that's the whole investigation right but that is important because you have to have a starting point, right? And like, what's the alternative view? Okay, you know, so we could start by, we could start from how things seem to us, or we could start by assuming nothing. Okay, and then what's the next step after that? 
right? So we start, we start with, you know, skepticism about everything or maybe skepticism about every positive claim or something. And then what's the next step after that? The next step after that is the end because there's no way to take any step because you don't have any claims that you're allowed to accept, right? Mm -hmm. You're because you're skeptical about everything, right? So, okay. You, you could also start with um, what seems false to you. We could start yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we assume that things are the way they appear not to be? I don't know, but that just seems kind of crazy. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it just seems like the important part, like you said, it's not the, it's not the end of the conversation, but it can form this this bedrock. Like when you get once you get to moral intuition, you don't just dismiss it. It's not like, well, the only thing supporting this view ultimately is moral intuition. So end of conversation. You can't trust intuitions. You know, this ultimately rests on some kind of bedrock of intuition, so it's all out. Like I think a lot of people think that way. And yeah. I agree with you that it's, you know, fundamentally confused, but people think that some people think that intuition is like a bad word. And if you can get people to admit that ultimately this is going to be on some kind of bedrock of, of intuition or seemings or something, then they're just like, oh, well, I win. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I should, I should say like, um, okay, so sometimes things are not the way they appear. Right. So like maybe this is the most popular type of objection. I can think of three cases of something that is not the way it seems. <laughs> okay. So, and th so therefore, what? <laughs> therefore, you know, skepticism about everything. And, you know, I note that, like, actually part of why I started doing epistemology, like I wrote um, my epistemology book before the ethics book, was that many of the arguments against moral realism are actually just general skeptical arguments. They're just, they're just like the arguments that the ancient skeptics gave for why you shouldn't trust anything except instead of saying that they say you shouldn't trust any moral judgments okay but so um you know like the ancient skeptics would do this thing they would give you like three examples of times when the senses misled you and then they would say see you can't trust the senses so now and you since that's your source of knowledge about the whole external world now you know nothing about the external world okay what's wrong with that i mean one thing is um well i mean we could maybe just doubt our observations in the particular cases in which they've been found to be unreliable, not all cases, right? Like, okay, so, you know, sometimes it's dark or you're not wearing your glasses or whatever, like maybe you should mistrust your judgments then. That doesn't mean that all um, sensory judgments are unreliable, okay. And then you could say a similar thing about moral judgments. Mm -hmm. So like, I agree, sometimes moral judgments are unreliable. So we should, be careful about the circumstances in which they're unreliable. But that doesn't mean that we can't trust any moral judgments ever, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, we make unreliable judgments in, in literally every context. Like, people make missteps and errors, like, you know, in, in history. You know, people make historical missteps. You know, it just, there's this really quick um, step that a lot of people make. I mean, like, this is like kind of a uh, it's not cliche to bring up, but like it's people bring it up so much because it, it's so like universally experienced where when you're talking to someone who is just starting to get into philosophy, then they become like a moral subjectivist, like almost immediately because of like yeah. moral disagreement. Um, yeah. Like people disagree, like different cultures disagree. Like they become aware, like, Oh, part of like my beliefs are partially culturally determined. I guess there are no facts about, um, you know, about moral judgments. And it's like, you know, 
it just seems so obvious. Like people disagree about everything. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's like no yeah. fact of the I mean, matter about those things. That happens if you introduce them to philosophy through metaethics. If you introduce them to philosophy through epistemology, then you know they quickly become global skeptics or something like that. <laughs> and you know, for similar reasons, right? You could be like, okay, well, your beliefs about the world are culturally conditioned, um, which is true. There's like an amazing correlation between people's descriptive beliefs and the culture that they were brought up in. So therefore, you know, you can't trust any, well, can't trust beliefs that are, you know, outside of your immediate observation or something. Right. Okay, and then you want to say something like, oh no, but our culture has like very good science to determine the truths. And how do you know that? Because other people in your culture told you that that was true, right? Other people told you that we have science and that science is reliable and whatever, right? Um, okay. And like, you know, the people in other cultures, like the people around them told them that they have whatever divine revelation and that that was reliable, which like, okay, you, know, you might think, well, the science story sounds more credible, but no, I mean, what, like, if there's divine revelation, that would be totally reliable. Like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> but um, my my point though is not to. <laughs> <laughs> my point is not that you know science is no better than uh, religious beliefs in you know primitive cultures or whatever, right? But it's just like um, it is true that people's beliefs are very much conditioned by the culture that they live in, but that doesn't mean that you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. or there's just no fact of the matter or like that's that's just the weirdest step to me though but uh, yeah i mean it does seem like it obviously generalizes past you know moral claims like you said a lot of the moral skeptical arguments are really just skeptical arguments like like fitted for mor morality specifically but you know the the argument from disagreement so this was the first chapter i read in ethical intuitionism actually i was trying to read stuff about moral disagreement so yeah. i read that chapter first and um yeah for anyone who's interested in the topic of moral disagreement then definitely read that chapter but um one of the things that i found like most interesting about it was and this is something i think anti-realists can get behind you know there shouldn't really be a division between realists and anti-realists which is that a lot of moral disagreement is not really moral disagreement it's just empirical disagreement like we disagree about descriptive facts about the world and um that's what causes a lot of apparent moral disagreement like if we thought that if we don't sacrifice a person, you know, the sun will go out, you know, like then, because that's not a moral belief. That's just a, a belief about how the world works. And it's like, okay, well, if we don't sacrifice someone, the sun will will burn out, you know, and like everyone will die. Um, the whole world will be like cast into darkness. And also the person who we sacrifice gets a better afterlife. You know, they get like a, they'll be better off. It's almost like we're doing them a favor, really. But it's like, if you had those two beliefs, you know. <laughs> um, I get to be sacrificed. Yeah. Hey, you'll Just wait, you'll be better off. But like, if you, if you really held those two descriptive, non-moral beliefs, then yeah, you'd probably come to the same conclusion because we make a similar calculation in our present day society where we do sacrifice people for the good of others. You know, people volunteer to sacrifice themselves like for the good of others, at least. And like, you can point out, oh, their beliefs are not totally accurate. You know, like people who die in 
um, you know, Iraq or something are not actually defending like free speech or something like that, like in the United States. Um, okay. But given those empirical beliefs, like some people are willingly sacrificing themselves for the good of others. And like, so we make the same exact moral calculation that the, that the Aztecs were making, you know, but we just have like different factual beliefs, you know, it's a purely descriptive disagreement. Yeah. I mean, I want to say like, I mean, there's a bunch of issues where, the disagreement is partly moral and partly descriptive. Uh, you know, when you th when you think about these issues and try to like figure out everything people are disagreeing about, it's not obvious that there's something very different going on with the moral components than the non-moral components, right? Okay, so like you gave that example about the sacrificing people. Like we think that it's wrong to murder innocent people, <laughs> but also. You know, if you had to murder an innocent person in order to stop the sun from literally going out, which obviously would lead to the death of everyone and not just people, but all life on earth would die, okay, um, you should do it. So, okay, so like they were wrong about a descriptive fact. And then you might wonder, like, well, why did they believe that descriptive fact? I mean, that's crazy. But um, like there are other issues where, it looks like there's a little bit of both. Okay, so we're we're disagreeing about whether abortion is morally wrong or something, and uh, it looks like that is largely about whether fetuses count as persons, because you typically, I mean, th this isn't the only thing that goes on. Like, but most people who are talking about the abortion issue, the pro-lifers say fetuses are people, and it's wrong to kill people. Killing, a, killing an innocent person is murder. Fetuses are innocent and they're persons. Okay, and then the pro-choice side does not say, no, it's fine to kill innocent persons. <laughs> so right, so that's, on the face of it, that's the moral question. The moral premise is wrong to kill innocent persons. Or I guess, I don't know, wrong to kill persons who haven't... Yes, you know, I want to delete the word innocent so that it won't contain another moral term. But anyway, okay, but that's not the premise that the pro-choices are disputing. They're disputing the premise that fetuses are persons, which on the face of it appears to be a descriptive claim. You could say maybe it's kind of a moral claim. Maybe person is sort of a moral term because maybe it means something like deserving of full moral consideration or like maybe that's somehow implied in the term person. Right. But anyway, so what I want to say is like, it's not totally obvious. It's like partly descriptive and partly a moral dispute. Right. And like, and the, um, and you know, well, like when people give their arguments, like they make it sound like it's a descriptive claim. So like the pro-lifers will say things like, no, like it's a truth of biology. I think like this is a terrible argument, but anyway, they'll say like, oh, you know, biology just teaches us that, it's a person or that it's a life or something. It's a human life or something like this. So anyway, so it really sounds like they're saying it's a descriptive claim. Okay. Um, but anyway, like what I want you to see is like, there's intense disagreements about certain subjects and on those subjects, there's intense descriptive disagreements as well, disagreements as well as moral disagreements. So it's not obvious that something totally different is happening with the moral disagreements. Like, whatever explains the descriptive disagreements, why can't that also be explaining the moral disagreements? Right, yeah, I mean, so moral disagreements could just be the result of, like, cognitive errors, you know, just, like, disagreements over any kind of descriptive claim. Like, again, people seem to be 
confused about how there could ever be such a thing as moral disagreement if moral realism is true because why don't we all just like intuit the same truths and it's like well even i mean like we disagree about things that i think moral anti-realists would agree there's like a fact of the matter about this like area and yet there's still disagreement you know like we disagree about um you know like the one example you give in the book is like who shot jfk like the like and the idea that you can just like follow the facts and then you'll be able to come to an absolute determination and convince all parties involved like absolute like you you've never been involved in this you know like yeah. it's it's not totally clear like what happened and if you think you're going to convince people based on just like following the facts that you're you're very sadly mistaken but obviously there's a fact of the matter of who did it and like why they did it um but yeah it's like so the same mechanisms that could lead to people disagreeing about any range of things that no one would deny there's a fact of the matter here there's an objective fact of the matter um so anyway just the fact that people disagree like it just it just doesn't really matter that much. It just doesn't like prove, you know. Um, but then there are all these related questions, like, oh, how do you resolve these disagreements if you're a moral realist? And it's like that's a totally separate thing. Yeah, and it's like, well, you know, I don't know why um, these questions come up for moral statements specifically. Like, well, I kind of know why, right? Like, people are trying to rationalize rejecting morality, right? But you could raise parallel questions about anything else. Oh, how are we going to resolve our disagreements about descriptive facts? Oh, we can't resolve them, actually. Like, you could say some things about how you're going to try to resolve them, but, like, if we had a way of resolving all descriptive um, disagreements, we would have done it. Like, you know, <laughs> we obviously do not have a way, just like we don't have a way of resolving all moral disagreements. So... We have things that we can try, which occasionally work, and that's true in both areas. Mm. Right? And like, so it's just, it's just like most of the things that you can say about morality that are supposed to be problems, you, can also, you could also say about other areas, but we don't say them because we're just like trying to attack morality. Right. Um, are you like a moral Platonist? Is that like an accurate description of what you think? I guess. I mean, I'm a Platonist in general, so... There are abstract objects and they exist necessarily right that's, so that's moral truths and platonism and and it's the same goes for moral truths they exist necessarily yeah. i mean more so moral properties are universals just like the other properties like like um you know red is a universal so that just like the property of being red okay that's an abstract object that exists necessarily also like the number two is a universal and it exists necessarily and then also goodness is a universal, it, it exists necessarily. And there are so and there are facts about the way some universals are related to each other. So um, red is a color. So like that's a necessary truth about red and the property of being a color or something. Uh, red and green are incompatible with each other. So like that's a relation between these two universals. So that relation holds necessarily. Okay, and then similarly, there are relations between moral properties or between descriptive properties and moral properties, right? So um, uh, there's like, you know, it, um, pain, it, pain is bad, other things being equal or something like this, right? Pro tanto, intrinsically bad. Okay, what's that? Well, that's a fact about the relationship between the property of painfulness and the property of badness. And that relationship obtains necessarily. Yeah, I, I was asking on behalf of um, a friend who 
wasn't wasn't clear on whether or not you would consider yourself some kind of moral Platonist. But um, you know, there are people like William Lane Craig who are constantly invoke the term moral Platonism. Um, and I think, you know, and he uses it disparagingly, so he's very yeah, anti-Platonist, yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, d I didn't know it because I was like, the first time I heard that, I'm like, I've never heard anyone say like, hello, I'm a moral Platonist, you know, like that's usually not yeah. the term that people <laughs> use to, uh, describe themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I found it, um, surprising. I was surprised and I found it a little bit weird that Craig was, um, like so down on abstract objects. It's usually... I mean, usually it's the victims of scientism who hate abstract objects, and they're like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and like, uh, they're the ones who go around th saying things are weird. And then Craig, who's like this hardcore theist, is also saying, yeah, abstract objects are weird. They don't exist. <laughs> well, he's like, he's worried that they impinge on God's like sovereignty or omnipotence or something. I'm not totally familiar with his arguments, but I think that he's worried that like God is not... See, I, now I wish I would have read uh, anything that he's said about this. But from what I've heard from others, he's like worried about the status of God's sovereignty or uh, the source of his omnipotence. If there are these like necessary truths that even he's not like, he couldn't have had anything to, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what his problem is, but I, I do. I do remember it has something to do with like his power and his, and his sovereignty, and like if there are these platonic things and they exist necessarily. And, um, you know, God is supposed to be the only necessary thing or, or something like that. I see. Yeah. Um, I mean, that sounds plausible, but I think that that's just clearly a bad way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, yeah, I mean, like the way to figure out the nature of universals or something is to think about them, not to think, what thing can I say about this so that I will sound like I'm really giving respect to God or whatever. Yeah, um, he's he's just universal. balancing, you know, theological considerations. He's like, okay, I'm committed to this like theological view, yeah. and like I have to interpret my view on abstract objects in light of this theological yeah. view. Yeah. No, yeah, like, um, I mean, that's that kind of sounds like what we call rationalizing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I mean, like, clearly, what you should do is, like, okay, you know, figure out you figure out if universals exist necessarily or whatever. And then if they do, you know, just like adjust your view about God. Now you might think, oh, well, why does it go that way rather than starting with my views about God? Well, because there isn't any independent evidence about this stuff that they're saying about God. It's like, okay, like God is supposed to be omnipotent. And what's the evidence for that? I don't know. Like it's in the tradition. Okay. But like, how do we define omnipotence? Like, um, you know, if, if we decide that universals exist necessarily, we're just going to like adjust the definition of omnipotence so that it's consistent with that. That's what we should do, right? Just like, you know, when somebody says, hey, can God create a stone so heavy he can't lift it? You just like clarify the definition of omnipotence so that that doesn't create a problem, right? You say, okay, well, you know, omnipotence means the ability to do anything that's logically possible, but it's not logically possible to make a stone that God can't lift. So, of course, God can't do that, and that doesn't make him not omnipotent. Like, you should just do some version of that, you know, with um, all of the other philosophical issues. Yeah, no, the like, the reasoning seems clearer than, like, you know, if you're trying to, like, interpret scripture, like, it seems like maybe you should go with some really clear philosophical arguments and say, like, okay, I'm going to interpret scripture in the light of the conclusions I've come to through these very clear philosophical arguments because i'm more certain about those than i am that i have the right interpretation of this like yeah. you know this document you know it seems like that's the even if you're a christian that's what you should be doing but like yeah. i've had this argument with people who are like 
um, you know, non-universalists, like they think that some people are going to like burn for all of time in hell. Yeah, yeah. And they're just like, well, look, I mean, that seems like the most obvious interpretation of this or that verse. And it's like, yeah, but here are all these really good philosophical arguments that that's like a, a morally abhorrent, like, thing to believe so shouldn't you i mean there are other ways to interpret that verse shouldn't you err on the side of the ones that don't commit you to all kinds of like moral absurdities isn't and yeah yeah by the way like just as an aside like keith derose has a great discussion of universalism which i found surprisingly persuasive like so initially i thought oh yeah like i guess you know i guess the bible says that we're going to hell <laughs> and then after i read DeRose's discussion i was like oh i guess it doesn't really say that <laughs> yeah. um but anyway um but i want to say like like scripture is not that clear on a lot of things and like there's no way that there's a really clear statement in scripture about nominalism nominalism <laughs> versus platonism or whatever like, <laughs> they just weren't thinking about that so like like there's clearer statements about who's going to heaven or hell like it's you know more directly relevant <laughs> statements um so like you know like that's part of why i say you should start with your general philosophical views right because yeah. the scripture is not like directly trying to address those in the first place yeah um and speak the keith Thoreau's thing for anyone who's interested is called universalism in the bible um you can get it online for free you can read it but yeah it's also um i also found it like pretty persuasive and i've also been reading david bentley hearts that all shall be saved and um yeah the case for universalism is pretty overwhelming like if i i would if i were a christian i would have to be a universalist like there's there's virtually no other option but um speaking of uh you know william lane craig and you know some of these religious topics something he said that you know i i've said this before but i had a harder time like backing it up um but it just seems really clear in in ethical intuitionism in the book that divine command theory is just a form of moral subjectivism like by definition if you just define what you mean by objective like what moral realists mean by objective and you know it, it's not like some special sense you know in philosophy that like oh no one uses the term objective in this way in any other context like no this is what objective means this is what we mean by subjective and like subjective in the relevant sense for moral philosophy we're talking about like constitutive dependence and once you're clear on some of these terms and then you start classifying these different like realist and anti-realist positions divine command theory is a form of moral subjectivism like it's it's funny because it's like one of these big scary terms you know for like evangelical apologists and stuff but like they're in the same boat as like cultural relativists and subjectivists like they're not moral realists you know like they don't believe in you know objective moral truths they just yeah. believe that it's like it's God's, you know, dictates. It's like his commands. That's what makes something right or wrong. And if God didn't exist, then there would be nothing that was right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. So the reason why it counts as subjectivism is, um, well, it's making moral facts dependent on the attitudes of an observer, namely God. He's a very interesting observer, but he's still an observer. And so they're saying like something is wrong in virtue of God disapproving of it or something like that. Okay, now what they would say and what Craig says is, I think, like, well, you know, it's like it's not relative. So um, because there's only one God, there's only one moral truth. And, and, you know, like they think that's the important distinction, right? And, you know, the other, the other forms of subjectivism have the moral truth varying from one person to another or from one society to another. So, okay, so like that is an inter interesting point. However, I think the more fundamental point is the metaphysical point. Like, 
is it metaphysically is, is the moral fact metaphysically dependent on observers attitudes like that's the fundamental metaphysical issue so like on that they're agreeing with the other subjectivists yeah i mean they don't think that god is like intuiting moral truths and just communicating them to us like then you could still be some kind of moral realists like oh well how do we know about these things like oh well you know god fine-tuned your moral intuitions or something like oh great you know but it's not like those truths constitutively depend on on god but yeah what craig and and other people in his camp say is like well look we have a standard you know our standard is god um you know what standard do you have like by what standard standard? does god have (laughs) so um (laughs) yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean like they're trying to sort of articulate a view that is more respectful to god by making everything derived from God. But in another sense, you could view it as being less respectful to him because like, you know, once you have this um, theory about divine commands, you have to ask, well, so why does God give the commands he does? Or why does he approve or disapprove of the things that he does? And then if you think that um, the moral truths exist necessarily, then it could be, well, God is doing the things that he does because those are the best things to do. But if you don't, if you don't have independently existing objective moral truths, and you just have to say no reason, he's just like completely arbitrarily doing stuff, and like he he commands us to do X arbitrarily. And you know why? Why do I say that? Because like there's no, it can't be because it's good. So it could be because of some other cause that that doesn't make the thing good. It could could be you know because it makes him happy, right? But. And, but then you're like, oh, and is that good? Well, it's only good because he says that it's good or something. So he doesn't have any reason for saying that it's good. Okay, so then I think in a way that that's less respectful to God. Like he's just doing a bunch of stuff arbitrarily. And now we have to obey him because he's like the big man. There's a um, There was a debate between Eric Wielenberg and William Lane Craig, which got turned into a book. And then so I have a, a commentary on the debate in that book. And then Craig kind of responds to me. So there's discussion of the stuff that we were just talking about in that book. Now I've forgotten the name of it, but it's on my bookshelf somewhere. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look that up. Um, So my friend was arguing with me about this, and he was saying, well, look, if a theist believes that God created everything, um, then everything is kind of in some trivial sense dependent on him, but that doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't have all these other implications in, like, other areas. So why would it have these implications um, in the like moral sphere. And I just think that like divine command theorists, they're not all the type of theist who believes that like God is continually sustaining everything in existence. Like some people think that God is literally sustaining everything. And like the, the notion of existential inertia is like, you know, completely crazy and like rocks wouldn't continue existing were it not for God, like sustaining their existence moment to moment. And it's like, so they think, oh, well, even if you're some kind of moral non-naturalist, like, oh, well, they came from God. And it's like, no, these are like necessary truths that obtain whether or not God exists. Um, but even if, I mean, I just feel like most theists, like they don't think that rocks would like blink out of existence if God stopped existing. But they do think that morals would blink out of existence if God yeah. stopped existing, which is what makes it kind of clearer to me that like, no, these moral truths do just depend on God's commands. And whether or not those yeah. commands depend on God's yeah. nature, it just, it doesn't really matter because like you were saying, there are either moral reasons that things are this way, like that his commands are what they are, or that his nature is what it is. There are either moral reasons or there aren't. If there are moral reasons, then, you know, divine command theory is false. And if there aren't moral reasons, then it's totally morally arbitrary, you know, um, which, you know, 
that's quite a bullet to bite as well. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you're just being given literally like morally random commands and that like you're obligated to follow these. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're probably right about what most theists think, right? Like most of them probably don't think that all, all things other than God would be, would stop existing. if God stopped willing them to exist or whatever. Um, so you very often hear this question about morality, like, Oh, you know, how could there be morality without God? But you almost never hear it about anything else. Like how could matter exist without God? But sometimes you get like what caused it to come into existence. Okay. But like, you know, how could it just like keep existing without God? Okay. And then, you know, you, you almost never hear, how could two plus two be four without God? You're like, God has to will two plus two to be four. Okay. Almost no one thinks that. And so what this reveals, but they do think the parallel thing about morality and what this reveals is that they're anti-realists about morality. Like they don't think that morality is real, like how two plus two is four is real. And I do. So I'm more of a realist, right? So I think it's more real than they do. So, you know, I think like pain is bad. Pain, that fact, that's kind of like two plus two being four. Like, and, you know, when I say it's bad, I mean, you know, it's like protonto intrinsically bad, right? Uh, you know, could, could be instrumentally good, could have um, good consequences, but just considered in itself. And so, um, you know, and like, yeah, just I can't imagine a situation in which that isn't the case, you know, just like how I can't imagine two plus two not being four. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did mean to ask you about an argument that's sort of related to that. Like, um, you know, some people call it the companions and guilt argument. Um, yeah, well, yeah, like some people in innocence as a case. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, you know, it, like some people, you know, refer to like logical or mathematical truths and say like, well, look, even if we're not totally sure how they exist or, you know, there might be some question, you know, whether you think it's like a, you know, rational or not, whether or not there's puzzlement, we don't have to worry about whether two plus two equals four, you know, it does. And like, you know, pain is bad. So like, even if we don't have some other metaphysical questions answered, like we can still be confident, um, you know, that pain is bad. Just like we can be confident if that, that two plus two equals four, even if we might be slightly puzzled about like the nature of universals or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, like, the, the type of argument is um, anti-realist comes and says something that's supposed to be problematic, problematic about moral facts, and then you just point out that that thing could also be said about other things that we probably don't want to reject. So, like, oh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have a causal effect on the physical world. Like, that's really weird, right? Like, the wrongness of murder doesn't physically move any particles around. So, okay, that's also true about mathematical objects. They don't physically move anything because they're abstract objects. And so, you know, and we probably don't want to reject them. And they're like, oh, you know, like we're, we're, we don't observe them with the five senses, you know, they're, it's, our beliefs are a priori. So that's also true about the mathematical beliefs and metaphysical beliefs and, you know, many other philosophical beliefs, right? So, you know, you can say this about um, several things like, oh, people disagree about them. And then, well, we, Yes, we disagree about morality, and then we also disagree about lots of other kinds of facts that you probably don't want to reject. Yeah. Um, there's a related argument that is um, sort of like from epistemic aughts, I guess. It's sort of like from other evaluative or like normative claims that seem less problematic. You know, like everyone thinks you ought to be logically consistent, you know, yeah. and it's like, shouldn't that be just as puzzling to you if you're like, oh, I don't understand how these moral truths could exist? Like, how could I? 
you know, how could it be the case that I ought not do this? And that's just like part of the universe somehow. It's like, well, don't you think you ought to, I don't know, be logically consistent or you ought not misrepresent your opponent's argument? Um, so do you think that, I mean, I've heard of some people being convinced by this where they're like kind of agnostic about realism versus anti-realism. They're like, oh, well, I have no problem with those like epistemic odds as it were. So like, why would I have a, like what principled reason could I possibly marshal to have, you yeah. know, against moral odds? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how often it actually convinces people because I think like a lot of people in philosophy conversations are dogmatic. So if you tell them this, a lot of people are going to go, huh. I guess there are no epistemic odds either. Oh, I guess there's nothing I ought to believe or ought not to believe. <laughs> so, you know, you try to say, um, you know, when we're having this conversation, aren't you assuming that um, we should adopt the true beliefs and not the false ones? And he's like, huh, I was assuming that, but now I realize that's not true because <laughs> that's weird. Because <laughs> it's weird to say that you ought to do something or ought not to do something. So... Um, and then they'll just say the same things that, that the anti-realists say, you know, about morality. They'll be like, of course, I prefer true beliefs over false beliefs. <laughs> I personally don't like contradictions. <laughs> like, I don't like contradictory beliefs and false beliefs and improbable beliefs and all that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just a personal preference of mine. Do you, how many error theorists actually go that way? Because I've heard conflicting things like, oh, well, if you're an error theorist, then you think there are just no oughts, period. And I've heard some error theorists be like, no, I, I like think you should be logically consistent, but I just don't think that you should like not murder people or something. Yeah. I mean, so it does depend on what your main argument is for anti-realism. Um, so I don't, I don't know survey, I don't have any surveys on anti-realists and how, how many of them are also anti-realists about all normativity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but okay, so like there's at least some arguments that would apply to morality. So you say, well, like there's all this variation in moral codes between different societies. So if you were impressed by that, you might become skeptical about moral norms, but maybe there's not such variation about epistemic norms. So maybe other societies agree that you shouldn't contradict yourself and then you should base beliefs on the evidence. I mean, maybe it's, that's not obvious, but anyway, you could, maybe you can make this argument. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, another argument is um, people say it looks like our moral norms were influenced by um, evolution and evolution doesn't care about, you know, the true morality, if there is one. It only cares about what promotes survival and reproduction. So, you know, whatever, our, our moral evaluations are probably not reliable indicators of the objective moral facts if there are objective moral facts. Okay, but then, you know, maybe you have an argument about um, epistemic rationality, like maybe epistemic rationality inherently promotes fitness, you know, survival and reproduction in a way that having the correct morals doesn't. Like, at least there's, you know, there's some scope to make that argument. Um, whereas, you know, with other arguments, it looks like they apply equally well. So if your problem is that you think that moral properties are weird, then epistemic properties are also weird. Like if you have a problem about their supervening on the natural world and oh, how can they, how can they be supervening? And then, you know, you have a problem about their inherently motivating. It looks like that also applies to epistemic norms because, you know, like they, they inherently influence beliefs. So um you brought up evolutionary debunking arguments which was something on my list that i really wanted to talk to you about like uh what do you think about these general arguments that like well look your moral beliefs are at least explainable in terms of evolution you know
know, like you have all these beliefs about how you should treat each other. And like, of course you do. Like, you know, we're a social species. Like it, it would be crazy if you didn't have beliefs about how to treat one another and that sort of thing. So, you know, look, it, we shouldn't multiply entities without necessity and we can explain all of our moral beliefs just with evolution and natural selection is not really a truth tracking process when it comes to moral beliefs. Like we can see how it would be with other beliefs, you know, like beliefs about the external world, like yeah. you need to successfully navigate your environment. So, you know, yeah, of course you accurately perceive the external world. Cause that's like the shortest pathway to successfully navigating um, the external world. But why would you be like intuiting you know, necessary moral truths. Like, what is the evolutionary advantage of that? So that's sort of the, um, you know, like in a in a nutshell, like what yeah. these people are getting at. You know, um, saying that, like, look, this is not giving us, this is not like a truth tracking process when it comes to moral beliefs. But obviously, you're a product of evolution. So why yeah. should you trust your, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. trust your, yeah. yeah. Sometimes some um, moral realists, upon hearing this don't see um they sort of like don't see the main point like they don't see why moral beliefs are different from descriptive beliefs right so on the face of it you might go well look uh, so evolution designed my eyes that doesn't mean i shouldn't trust my eyes so if evolution designed my moral sense then why would i not trust my moral sense right and then and the answer to this is well so we can give an explanation of why um your like having vision had survival value and that explanation, um, it would use facts about the world being like corresponding to the beliefs that you wind up with. Um, it would use that to explain why eyes were selected for. Right? So like um, when there's a tiger out there and then you have a visual impression of a tiger, like the fact that your visual impression is corresponding to the actual tiger, like that is that would be used in the explanation of why you survived better. <laughs> like if you had, yeah. So if it looked to you like a rabbit, but it was a tiger, you would not survive as well. Okay. But then if you try to give an explanation like this for moral beliefs, um, it's just really hard to see how it goes, right? Where somehow the fact that your moral belief is corresponding to the moral fact is going to explain why you were successful in reproducing or surviving. And anyway, so, um, so one thing that people can, could try to do is just like, you know, try to come up with some explanation that goes that way. Uh, David Friedman had an interesting suggestion, which was, um, well, you know, like there's only one moral truth. So if you have accurate moral perception, then you're able to coordinate with other people. And like, and you know, he has, uh, he has a very interesting paper in which he talks about how important coordination is. Right. And so, um, there's an argument that could be made, right? So like, if you have accurate perception, then your perception will match that of other people. If you have inaccurate perception, maybe it will be random and you just won't be able to coordinate and then you won't be able to cooperate and then you won't survive as well. Okay, whatever. So like you could try to give that story. Um, but the other thing is um, the people who give the evolutionary debunking arguments, I think they don't understand the, the um, most common moral realist view. They think that the moral realist view is a moral sense theory there have been moral sense theorists, but there are not that many. Like most moral realists today are not moral sense theorists. And by that, I mean people who think that there is a separate faculty specifically for perceiving moral facts, right? Which is different from all of our other faculties. Like, so there have been people who thought that, but that is not the main 
form of moral realism. Most moral realists think that our knowledge of moral facts comes from the same faculty by the same means as our knowledge of other a priori abstract truths. All right, so like, you know, a common view, my view anyway, is, well, we know some, we know some of the necessary truths about how abstract objects are related to each other because we grasp the natures of these things. So if you grasp the nature of green and you grasp the nature of red, like you understand what red is and you understand what green is, then by virtue of that understanding, you can see that red and green are incompatible with each other. Right? And so like that's an illustration of the fact that if you understand two, the natures of two abstract objects, then you can know some things about how they're related to each other. Okay, and so similarly, you understand the nature of goodness and you understand the nature of badness and whatever, and you understand the nature of pain. If you understand those things, then you would know that pain is intrinsically bad. Um, and because that just like, that kind of follows from the natures of those things, right? Which is necessary given the nature of pain and given what badness is, right? So like, I think that's the mo more common view. Anti-realists probably think that that's a, crazy view or something like that, which is why they ignore it. But anyway, you can't just ignore it. Okay, so like if that's your view, then I don't have to give a separate explanation of why moral, like accurate moral perception would be adaptive, right? It's just the reason why we have accurate moral perception is that we have the faculty of reason, right. which we use for lots of stuff. So you're thinking that we can just explain why, you know, rational, why, why like rationality evolved or like why our reasoning faculties in general evolved. And once you can explain why human beings are able to reason about the world, then you can explain, you know, how we know about moral truths because there are these necessary truths, just like, you know, logical truths or mathematical truths. And in the same exact way, we know about logical truths you know, through intuition, then that's also how we know about moral truth. So we just, we evolved this generally truth tracking, like set of cognitive faculties. And that's how we know about moral truths. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. So now, um, you know, I should say, like, I think um, our instincts have some influence on our moral beliefs. So you can give examples, um, like, you know, strangely, like people think that they have obligations like really strong obligations to their offspring. And they don't think that they have these really strong obligations to other children who are equally needy and equally mm -hmm. uh, helpless and whatever. So, huh, I wonder why that is. Like, there's a totally obvious evolutionary explanation for that. Right. Okay, so that's true. However, that's not true for all moral beliefs. There's like specific moral beliefs where there's like a really really compelling evolutionary story. And then there's others where there's not. Like if we were, if it was um, all explained by evolution, a priori what you would expect is that the dominant view would be, um, you know, reproduction consequentialism, which is the view that the right action is that which maximizes your reproduction. But that is no one's view. Right, right? yeah. Yeah, there are so many beliefs we have that are like, kind of in conflict with our reproductive success like um i don't know and it's not like i'm saying oh it's impossible for um you know darwinists to explain this or whatever it's just um you know there's a simpler explanation where it's like look the these kind of evolutionary forces over human psychology it just doesn't exhaust the list of um you know things that influence how we think about the world but i am curious though 
how, you know, if these things like don't have any causal effects, you know, how is it that they're, I don't know. I, I'm always confused when people say this, when people say like abstract objects have like no causal effects whatsoever, because it does seem like they influence my behavior, you know, like they influence the like pattern of neuronal firing in my brain because I'm taking into account moral truths or logical truths or like mathematical truths. And I'm like, you know, if I'm an engineer, I'm, I'm building structures differently, like on the basis of these mathematical truths. So it yeah. seems like in some trivial sense, they are having some kind of causal impact on the world. Like if, even if they just exist in my mind and I'm just thinking about them, well, yeah. how are they not having some kind of causal impact? Yeah, I mean, the standard answer is, oh, no, you're confused. Um, what you meant was your beliefs about abstract objects influence your behavior, not the abstract objects themselves. So if your beliefs were the same, but the abstract objects were different, per impossibile, then your behavior would be the same. <laughs> Uh, and I, like, I see, I see two bears go into the cave and I see another two bears go into the cave and somebody says, Hey Mike, how many bears are in the cave? And I go, Hmm, two plus two is four. So there's four. Okay. And then the claim is the fact that two plus two is four, didn't play any role. Rather my believing that two plus two is four played a role in explaining why I said there were four. Right. And, right. And then that's supposed to be shown by saying that, um, in a possible world in which I believe that two plus two is four, but it isn't. I would still say there were four bears. Right. Okay. Um, but don't you think like that it's true has some kind of, I, I don't know. It just seems like kind of weird to vacuum seal off, you know, this like platonic realm totally like from physical events. Like, because even if you say like, oh, you're intuiting these things, it's like, I'm not presuming that like, oh, there has to be some kind of like physical contact or something. But it is still an interesting question of like, you know, how do I know about these things again? Like where, like, do I have access to them? Like how exactly are they coming in? How are these thoughts even coming into my head exactly? Like how am I able yeah. to like know about these things? Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think like it's pretty compelling that um, they, they only influence your behavior, if at all, through your beliefs. So then the question is, oh, but are your beliefs influenced by the abstract objects? And I find that very non-obvious. So, okay, so I think about two and four and I come to the belief that two plus two equals four. And was that caused by the fact that two plus two is four? Uh, like, I don't know. Um, so one test of that is if two plus two were not four, would I still believe that it was? I have no idea because I don't understand that antecedent. Like, I don't see how mm -hmm. two plus two could not be four. It couldn't not be four. So like, I don't, and if you like try to reason from the assumption that two plus two is five, I have no idea what follows from that. Hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know if I would believe that it was five, if it was five. So I, I just have one more question for you um, before I let you go. And again, thank you for uh, being so generous, generous with your time. And I'd love to have you back sometime. But um, I did want to ask about dualism because I saw your debate with Graham Oppie on, um, dualism and uh, materialism and i did want to okay so something you said was that consciousness doesn't seem spatio-temporally located you know like it doesn't seem like my it seems like my brain is somewhere but my my consciousness is not like physically located in the same way um and you didn't say this you didn't bring this up like oh here's my argument for dualism but api was like kind of cross-examining you and like that's why why it came up um 
So is that what you think? Like consciousness is not spatiotemporally located. Like in your case, like the soul is not spatiotemporally located, even though the brain is. Yeah, it's not spatially located. So, um, right. So like you have mental states at particular times. There's a good answer to when did you feel that, but right. there's not a good answer to where was the feeling. Um, so the only confusion I have about that is it seems right to say that if we have souls, that your soul is in Colorado right now and my soul is in Michigan. And if you said, no, Mike's soul is in Michigan, it'd be like, no, that's false. It's in Colorado. Well, um, so it does seem like not it's in Michigan. Definitely but, not. Yeah. But I don't think it's anywhere. Hmm. Uh, it's not, it's not literally located in the same way that material objects are located. But it is interacting with a body that is located in Colorado. <laughs> and okay. your soul is inter interacting with the one that's located in Michigan or whatever. Okay. Um, but it's not located in Michigan or Colorado? No. Okay. Right. I mean, like, you know, and let, and, well, it's not located in the sense that material objects are located. Right. So, like, you know, maybe you could define another sense of location, which is it's interacting with the body that's located there. Um, but, you know, like, if you if you think that, souls have locations, then, um, you know, like I could ask for more precise information about its location and I'm going to like figure out what size and shape your soul is. And that just doesn't seem correct. Right. Like, okay. So it's in Colorado. Where in Colorado? And, you know, okay. It's in Denver. Okay. And where, and like, it's in this apartment. Okay. And where, and then it's in this body It's like in the place where the body is and exactly where it's like, in the is it in my head and like is it in the whole head or is it in the is it like covering the entire brain or just part of the brain okay and then you know after, after you answer all these questions then there's going to be a determinate answer to the shape that your soul is like well you have a brain-shaped soul <laughs> my God, that doesn't seem correct or maybe it's shaped like the pineal gland or something right <laughs> um okay I swear last question and then I will actually let you go. It's a really simple yes or no question. So you're a dualist. Do you think that your soul like strongly emerged out of processes or do you think that it already existed and sort of like it attached quote unquote to these physical processes? Um, That's not a yes or no question, but sorry. I get, well, so if you look at my um, amazing paper about reincarnation, um, I, I think the soul is eternal. Mm -hmm. So it always existed and it always will exist. However, sometimes it's embodied and sometimes it's not. So what happened is like, you know, there are changes of the physical world that enabled your soul to become embodied. But also there was no first time that that happened because time goes back forever into the past. So you've had infinitely many lifetimes in the past and there will be infinitely more, many more in the future. So like there's no answer to how it started. It didn't start. Hmm. Okay, so it, it did not like... Did it, there was no time when it didn't exist and then it like strongly emerged, you know, like in this non-reductive way from these like physical processes. Cause it seems like that's what property dualists are talking about, you know, like some kind of strong emergence, but yeah, I was, I was pretty sure that's not what you thought. Cause you thought the soul was eternal. Okay. Well, I will actually let you go now. Um, thank you so much for uh, coming on and, and talking about this. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, you're welcome back anytime. Yep. You're welcome. Uh, it's been great talking to you. So that was my interview with Michael Humer on Meta Ethics. I hope you enjoyed it. And please subscribe to the channel if you aren't already. 
If you'd rather listen over podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else they keep those things. If you enjoy the show and value it, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash counter or patreon.com slash waldenpod. Thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.